All right, y'all open up to Job. It's after Esther. It's before the Psalms. So it's sort of in the middle. Now you should have a handout in front of you. We ran out tonight, which is a good thing. Y'all keep on coming. Uh, For those of y'all, you know, maybe this is first time back since we started. The the emphasis has been changed and I've sought to... not shrink, but um, present the material in a quicker fashion so we can have a bit of back and forth, some questions and answers and thoughts as we kind of begin to dialogue about what it is that can help us to dive in uh, to respective books of the Bible. Tonight we come to Job, and Job is quite difficult. Uh, It's a difficult book of the Bible to just open up if you're unused to biblical literature Uh, If you're unused to Old Testament literature, or if you uh, are unfamiliar with some of the doctrines of Christianity, uh, you know, the the Hebrew is notoriously difficult. Now, I think sometimes the harder the original language, the harder the English is, right? It seems to make sense in my brain, but uh, maybe that's not the case. But uh, the Hebrew is notoriously difficult because this is a, a supremely unique book of the Bible, it's within the wisdom literature, uh, literature, the wisdom genre. So you've got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and Job. Job is unique, though, because it follows a historical figure. We know that because Ezekiel considers him to be a, uh, historical. And so does James, the brother of Jesus, in the letter, uh, the epistle, James, in the New Testament. And so we've got this historical figure, Job, who is somewhere at some time... In history, uh, he's in Ur of the Chaldeans, or Uz, and, and we wonder, well, that kind of sounds like somewhere we've heard before, but it's, it's, it's a pretty big place, all right? Abraham came from there, but it doesn't mean that, uh, that Abraham and Job are friends or something like that. Uh, Job could be during the time of Abraham, or he could be during the time of Ezekiel, or he could be during any of the time in between. So we're looking at a large swath of time where Job might be found. But that's not the point, and that's not the reason why God in his providence allowed the Holy, or the Holy Spirit, rather, allowed uh, the, men, the man who wrote this to carry this along and for it to be preserved for us. No, God kept this book here and preserved it for us for a particular reason, one that steps outside of the bounds of history, just like the other pieces of wisdom literature, right? that don't find themselves in need of chronology. You know, when was a psalm written? When was Psalm 23 written? That's not the point, right? But we all know about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Well, Job has a similar point. There's a reality that steps outside of the bounds of time, as all of Scripture does in some form or fashion, but uh, you know, like Esther, we can kind of see where she was. Like Daniel, we know where he is. Like David, we can place him. But Job, there's something more. There's a point to be made, uh, and it's done in this wisdom literature fashion. And so we see an important question being answered Why do we suffer? It's a tough one. Suffering exists. It's a real thing, but why? That's the question that Job asks. That's the question that his friends ask. 
The theme for Job, you'll see it on your handout, is that God is in control even in the midst of suffering. And remember that up top in the heading, we have our points now for your recollection if you were to come back and look at this. Because ladies, I believe that for the ladies Bible study, you might be entering into Job. I hope that this might be of some help to you as you do that. Men, maybe the ladies as they're talking about it and they come home or something like that. You might benefit from it as well. But uh, here's the things that we need to remember and the things that we're going to go over in hopefully it won't feel like lightning fashion, but it's going to be quick. And then maybe we'll talk about it. Sin is not always the cause of suffering. This is an important point of Job. Suffering has no meaning outside of a sovereign God. It's another point. And then lastly, the sovereign God of the Bible is protector, redeemer and restorer of his people. Let's pray and see if we can't dive into Job a little deeper. Heavenly Father God, we pray that in this moment, as we open up a large book of the Bible that you have preserved for us, Father, we would pray that we might see what it is you would have for us in it, that we would see that you are God, that you are in control, that suffering indeed exists, and yet, Father, indeed, you are good your comforter and redeemer and restorer of your people. And so, Lord, allow us to see it. Allow us to see Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray by the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, Job. Here are the things that will help us to get into Job, which, as I was praying, is a larger book, 1 to 42, right? 42 chapters, some of the chapters we can begin to get lost in. How many people have read Job? Quite a few. How many people can remember the structure of Job? What is it? Anybody want to holler out? What? What is? How is it structured? Conversation. That's right. That's right. Indeed. So the structure of Job, just like that, it's conversation, speeches. And really, conversation almost does it too much justice because when you read it, sometimes, this might just be me, I can get a little lost because the, the speeches don't necessarily answer one another. Uh, they, they are speeches that kind of stand alone, and, and it's like, let's see who can make the best one. So the friends are there trying to answer a question. Why is Job suffering? This guy's really suffering. He's lost everything. His whole body is breaking down. Let's answer it, all right? So I stand up and I give my answer. Larry stands up and he gives his answer. Ryan stands up and he gives his answer. And then Job says, y'all are all wrong. Uh, that's, what, that's basically kind of what it's like. We get an introduction, which is very important because we see why. And we know why from the very beginning. Job is suffering because God ordained it to be so. We're about to dive into that. And then we see at the very end a little bit more about that answer. So we have more than Job did. All right. Um, But these are the things that we need to know as we dive into Job. We need to know the first chapter, the first two chapters, the introduction. This is before the poetry starts. If you have your Bibles and you're looking at chapter one and then you look at chapter two, it's it's narrative. And then you go to chapter 3, if you notice, it changes in your Bible, right? It becomes indented. It's poetry. 
something different happens. And these are where the conversation, the speeches begin of Job. And then if you were looking, uh, his friends in chapter 2, verse 11, uh, you'll see his friends, uh, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite. And then there's also Elihu who comes a little later. uh, And we can see him in just a moment. So we need to know the first part. Chapters 1 and 2. This is the introduction, and this sets up the question, why suffering, all right? And this is where we look, and you see this remember section on the header. Sin is, all, is not always the cause of suffering, all right? Sometimes when you sin, you do suffer. If you drive drunk home from this meal, I don't know how you would be drunk, but if you were, and you drove home, and you got caught, and you went to jail, well, there was a a direct correlation, right? You were sinning by drinking and driving. You got caught, and so you went to jail. Now you are suffering for such sins, okay? So I'm not saying that uh, sin doesn't uh, cause suffering. What I am saying here is that sin is not always the cause of suffering, and that there is something beyond it. All right? And it's, it's God. This is a very difficult truth for us to slam into in the very beginning of a book of the Bible. And it's this. God is the one, and you, I'm sure maybe you've heard this if you've talked about Job or if you've read or heard people teaching. Satan doesn't know about Job immediately. God knows about Job. And God says this to Satan, who is going across the earth, hither and thither, looking to see what kind of destruction he might cause. And God says this. You see it on uh, your solid rock verses in the introduction. Job chapter 1, verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? And so Job is then put into the crosshairs of Satan, not, not by Satan himself, but by God. And then it goes on, if you see in Job chapter 2, verse 3, the Lord said to Satan a second time, have you considered my servant Job? So the first time that Satan considers Job, he takes away his whole family. All of his children die. And what does Job say? It's famous, right? I hope that you've heard it, and if you haven't, Welcome to a Christian believer who can look past the suffering that he's in. That's right, son. (laughs) Isaac's hollering out. Uh, Job chapter 1, verse 20. This is what Job's response is. When he loses his children, Job arose and tore his robe. This is chapter 1, verse 20. Shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. He also lost all his animals and things like that. Well, that happens, didn't sin. So what happens again? Satan comes back and says, the only reason that Job didn't abandon you is because you kept the hedge of protection a little too far out. Give him over to me. And so God said, okay. But God was the one that brought it up again, remember? And so uh, he, he goes again and he says this time, the only thing you can't do is kill him. So some bad things happen. Boils, flesh falling off, 
His wife even says, why don't you just curse God and die already? Even his family now has turned. But what does Job say? Chapter 2, verse 10. He said to her, that is his wife, after she said, curse God and die. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. This is who God is. This is a bigger picture of God. I've said this before at Centennial, so I don't really have to say it again. uh, Because I've said it. Suffering is real. And suffering happens. Right? I've said it so many times. Some people don't know it. Or some people refuse to believe it. Or some people act like they believe it until they start suffering. And then they don't believe it. Because they were just saying it with their lips. Suffering is real. And suffering comes from a sovereign God. Now, he isn't the first cause to use the, uh, uh, the articulated version. He's not the one who's causing the suffering particularly, but he's certainly allowing it, and he's certainly ordaining it. Why? Because God is in control. If God is God, it means that he's in control. We have to acknowledge that. Other things we can deal with. What about the problem of evil? Where did evil come from? How does this... If God is God, he is in control. If we acknowledge the God of the Bible, he is in control of everything. That's where chapters 1 and 2 start us. Okay, Job doesn't necessarily have what we have. He doesn't know that they were talking. And just to let you know, he never knows. He's never given the answer. But we'll get there. The first thing that we need to see is this introduction of God's sovereignty. And then we move into the fact that we need to know the the difference between truth and wisdom. So, uh, the difference between truth and wisdom. We see this introduction in chapters 1 and 2, and then from chapters 3 to chapter 37, all the way through, we get these speeches, speech after speech. We see uh, Eliphaz go, then Bildad go, then Zophar go. We see Job interject within these things and answer them. A lot of the commentators call them cycles, right? There's a cycle of speeches, and so then they stop, and there's an interlude. Then there's another cycle of speeches, and they stop. And there's just so much content, right? Chapter after chapter of all these things. But what we need to begin to decipher is the difference between truth and wisdom. Y'all maybe aren't familiar with some of these, but some of them can be pretty funny. Like misquoting scripture. It's never funny, right? But uh, if we're just going to kind of uh, giggle a little bit. Misquoting scripture. Has it, have anybody just hit you with a real comical one? The one that I get sometimes is don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. The Bible says it. Paul was making fun of the person that said that, right? Uh, it's, it doesn't mean that we might not need to not handle or not to see. He smiled. Um, so, uh, you know, th- there's misquoting of Scripture that can happen for us, right? We might take something out of context. Well, what we see here in these speeches is truth, all right? Job's friends are speaking truth. You can go through it. Paul quotes Bildad, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because sometimes what you hear in the book of Job is that, well, 
Job's suffering, his friends should have remained quiet like they started off in chapter 2. That's what it says. They remained silent near him. And then they started to speak, and that was their great folly. Because then they started to speak, and they were wrong. You've got to be careful when you say something like that, right? We have all of this recorded in Scripture. Are you saying that 36 chapters has no redeemable content? No, I don't think that's what we mean. So what do we, what do, we do with it then? What's all this meat, all this content supposed to reveal? What well, reveals a lot of truth, but it doesn't reveal a lot of wisdom. And this is wisdom literature, right? Let's look at a couple examples, and you'll see this in the contents of speeches section of the Solid Rock Verses. This one took me a while to compile because I wanted to provide for y'all examples that are particular to what we're talking about. And this truth without wisdom one is very important. Look at me, uh, look with me uh, in the content section, that first one, suffering because of wickedness. This is an example of his friends, the three friends. They said, well, Job, why are you suffering? I have the answer. It's because you're evil. God doesn't like evil people. And so because of that, you're suffering. And here's an example. Job chapter 8, verse 20. I have it written right here. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man. And Job, if God will not reject a blameless man, and he has clearly rejected you, then, ergo, you must be an evil man. Job's rebuttal of such wickedness then comes in Job chapter 23, verse 11. That, that's a true statement, by the way. God, he won't reject a blameless man. That'll preach. I mean, that is reality, right? Jesus Christ, perfect man. Does God reject him? Yes. Why? Not because he was imperfect, but because he took on imperfection. Not rejected until he went to the cross. Why was he rejected then? Because he took our imperfection. That's, by the way, why we can walk into heaven and stand before the throne of grace rather than the throne of judgment. Because God will not reject a blameless man. Jesus Christ took our sins. Therefore, before the throne of grace, we are blameless. That's a true statement. You could preach that. I could preach from that one single verse, and y'all would be wondering when lunch was ready because we would go so long, right? But, y'all are like, well, that already happened. So, um, so, but there's not wisdom in the statement when it's said here to Job. And so what does Job say? Here's just an example, chapter 23, verse 11. My foot has held fast to his steps. Talking about God. I have kept his way. I am blameless before him. How is he described in chapter 1, verse 1? A man blameless and upright, loving his children, consecrating sacrifices on their behalf. Job really is an upright man. Ezekiel, uh, in Ezekiel, uh, he receives a prophecy from the Lord, and he is compared, Job is compared to Daniel and to Noah. If you're compared to Noah, you are very righteous. God couldn't find anybody on the planet except for Noah. That is a strong compliment. And so Job's saying, hey, careful, I'm not wicked. And so here's another example, suffering because of lack of service. Well, you might not be wicked, but you certainly don't serve as much as you should. 
I saw Sarah Mills in there cleaning those dishes, and you were sitting out here eating a piece of cake. Right? Say, well, what do I answer? Suffering. Job 22. You see this. Because of lack of service. You have sent widows away empty. Therefore, snares are all around you. Because you did this, suffering is happening to you. There's a truth there because, indeed, if your heart is wicked and you are seeking pridefully and greedily to turn those in need away and, because of that, to line your own pockets or to have ease. You know, perhaps you are dealing with slothfulness and you don't want to help just want to sit whatever it is right suffering might be accrued there there's truth to that there's reality reality to that the gospel jesus didn't turn these people away they came the needy the hungry the sick the ailing and what did he do matthew tells us healed all fed all cared for all sat at table with sinners turned away none that would listen what does job say he rebuts it. He says, I hear you, but this is just Job 31, 16 through 22. We're walking down the contents section of this handout. 31 verses 16, and it's really through 22, but I've just kind of made it small for us on this handout. If I have caused the eye of the widow to fail, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. What? Uh, I mean, this is intense, right? I mean, it is poetry but there's a reality here okay job is saying listen i have served and then there's another example we'll we'll skip it but you can see it here uh that there's uh suffering to make you holier listen job you might be holy instead of wicked you might be serving the way you should but that doesn't mean that god won't put you through the furnace to make you holier you've heard that right i've heard that people tell me that all the time what does job say this fire hurts a little too much. I don't think you're right. There's truth there, though, because God does do that. But the wisdom was lacking. And this is a book on wisdom. There's truth to all of his friend's statements. There's truth to Job's rebuttals. But the reality stands that they were all looking at the wrong thing. And this is where we see uh, uh, this last speech, and, and that's really Elihu. Uh, and we'll come back to Job chapter 19, right? That's, I know that my Redeemer lives. Well, uh, actually, let's go there first. So, so these three friends are speaking to, to Job, and they keep telling him, you're suffering for a reason. I don't know what it is, but you're suffering for a reason. Job says, I can't find the reason. I'm suffering, but I'm not wicked. I am serving, and I think that it's too much for God to be putting me through a refining fire. Something else is happening. And so then he gets very frustrated with his friends. And he says, why are you not comforting me? And that's the exact point, right? There's a lack of wisdom that goes along with the truth. Reformed churches, of which Centennial is one, Bible-believing churches that are strong on doctrine can often be truthful without wisdom. It's a reality that we always need to guard ourselves against. And Job himself says it in chapter 19. Flip it open there. This is a good example of taking verses out of context a little bit. Uh, let's read this famous verse, chapter 19, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Beautiful, beautiful verse regarding the reality of God's uh, working in redemption. 
for his people. Where does it come, though? It comes within a speech from Job where he's saying, y'all aren't comforting me. Y'all are speaking truth, maybe, but it is not comforting and it is not wise. Let's just look at a few verses. Chapter uh, 19, verse 1. Job answered and said, how long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? He's talking to his friends. He's talking to believers. These ten times you have cast reproach on me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make me a disgrace and argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. But behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness across my path. And it continues on. This is the context where his friends, humanity didn't help him. He feels the presence of God slowly draining away as he begins to look inwardly on his own suffering. He has not sinned. He has not abandoned God, but he cannot feel God's presence. And he's crying out. And at the end, what does he say? Goes through all of these things. We'll just start up with verse 20. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Why? For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. If you say how, we will pursue him, and the root of the matter is found in him. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know there is a judgment. He's telling his friends this simple statement. You might be speaking truth, but you are not wise. And I know that my Redeemer lives, and I greatly need him now. He can't feel it yet, though. He he sees all this suffering. He realizes that there's suffering happening, and he has no idea why, because he doesn't have chapter 1, right? He doesn't have chapter 2. That's not where Job enters the scene. We see the the beginning. uh, We'll see the end. But Job is here now, and he's wondering what is happening. Job has frustration with his discomforters. That's that section right there. And then Elihu shows up, and everything changes. There is a prophetic note to Elihu. This is a young man who comes in. He was quiet the whole time because young men stayed quiet until all the old men spoke in this generation. And then in that moment, he got so frustrated at what these people were doing that he just blurted out how wrong everybody was. And you can see that. We don't have to go through it. But if you look at Job 32, just verses 1 through 5, don't worry, we're really almost finished. It's crazy to say Here's chapter 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. That's Job. Job is righteous in his own eyes. There's strike one. Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. 
there's strike two. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. There's strike three. Job and his three friends, they might have been speaking truth, but they were not wise. And what happened in the end was that they fell into sinful pride in looking at themselves. I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. No, you're all wrong, I'm right. What does Job say? Read it. When you read through this book on your own, look for it. Job is actually fairly self-righteous in some, some points. You'll hear him crying out that he wishes he was never born, and then you'll hear him defending himself, and he'll say, look for blame in me. I want God to come and look, because I know that when God looks at me, he'll see not a thing wrong. Oh, careful, Job, right? Be careful. And why should he be careful? Well, because God answered him. Where is God? Where is God? I am suffering. Where is God? Where is my answer? Chapter 38. Elihu, by the way, is rebuking all of them for 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37. He's rebuking, 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 rebuking. Rain clouds are starting to form, by the way. And all of a sudden, the whirlwind appears. Verse 30, chapter 38, verse 1. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. Gird up your loins, is what the Hebrew says. Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you and you. Make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then he goes on and he's asking question after question after question. And the questions are teaching moments for Job. Because Job wasn't there. Job doesn't know. Job is realizing through this poetic structure that the Lord is speaking through all of the realities of what God has done, what God is doing, how God is in control, by the way, of the scariest and most chaotic beast that you could ever find in biblical literature, the Leviathan, right? What is the Leviathan? Where was he? What is it? What could it be? Is it a dinosaur? Now, don't think that way. Realize that the poetry and that the reality is God is saying, listen, you know that Leviathan? I am in control of it. He bows to me. I made him. The Leviathan was the most chaotic thing because the sea was chaos in the Bible, right? If you go out on a ship in the sea during this time, you didn't have a compass. You didn't even really have star charts. You didn't know when the weather was going was to get bad or was going to get clear. You, you didn't know anything. You had no guess even. And it was very chaotic. If you fell in, you didn't even maybe even have a life vest. <laughs> you might throw a piece of wood or something so you could cling on. If it was bad, people died. All the time. You got sick. You ran out of food. The sea was chaos in the people's eyes. That's why you see in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, the spirit hovering over the deep of the waters, right? There's chaos, and then God raises dry land. Order to the world. He creates order. That's what we see here when God says, this Leviathan going around in the sea, no big deal. This suffering that you're dealing with, I am God. I made everything. I know everything. And more than that, I know you. He answers and he answers and he goes on. Job, by the way, as God is speaking to him, stays silent in one part. I 
hear you speaking, God. I'm going to remain silent. And then God speaks again, right? And goes on some more. And we come to this conclusion section after God has spoke and spoke and spoke and revealed his majesty and sovereignty, his control, his power, the reality of who God is. We come to Job's confession in chapter 42, the last chapter, which, by the way, is what we need to know, the beginning and the end. We've seen that sin's not always the cause of suffering because God, in a sense, ordained all of these things to be. And now we see why. Because we see the answer in chapter 42. What was God's intention for Job's suffering? Job, a righteous man, blameless before the eyes of the Lord, and yet still a man with sin in him. And we see him now holier than before. Not because of a furnace, though he went through a furnace. Not because of his wickedness, though he was wicked. No one is righteous. Not one. That's what we see in scripture. That's us included. Not because he didn't serve enough, but he didn't serve enough. Because God ordained this to be so for his own glory. And look here. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. This is Job speaking, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. That's him quoting God. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself. And repent in dust and ashes. There's a better word for the repent here. And you see it in the, uh, you see in the ESV Bibles. There's a little four footnote. Therefore, I am comforted in dust and ashes. I am comforted. The reality stands that, that God is working something in Job. He's working something in you. God is good. He is protector. He is redeemer. He is restorer. But we also know that suffering exists. What in the world are we to do with this? This is the point. God didn't answer Job. The answer's not there. It's mind-boggling when you really think about it. What did God do? He revealed himself. That's all he did. God literally walked into the room and said, Job, I am God. Look at me. I am God. And when Job looked at God, he knew that his Redeemer lived. He knew that he could be comforted. He knew that he could be restored. And so he was comforted even in dust and ashes. That's the suffering moment, right? That's where he was when his skin began to fall off. Hair gone. Leprosy. Can't see. Taste won't eat, throws up, diarrhea, the whole time. You can read it here. It's horrible. Not to mention all of his family is gone and his wealth. What does he say? I had heard of you before, but now I see you. Therefore, I despise myself and I am comforted in dust, dust, uh, dust and ashes. Job has realized that there is something beyond him that is happening that there is a God who is sovereign. That suffering still exists. And yet suffering can now be put in its place. 
doesn't change the fact that suffering hurts or that suffering is difficult. That's the reality. But there is more beyond that. There is God. And we see that at the end. You know, God, he kept a hedge of protection around Job, by the way. Don't kill him. He protected Job. Don't kill him. You can take everything he has. Don't kill him. Job never renounced God. Read. Look for it. He never renounces God. He cries out to him as angry as you can be. He talks to him. He's frustrated. He wishes that he could die. He wishes that he was never born. But he never renounced God. And in the end, you see what happened. And God actually speaks to his three friends. Hey, you spoke truth, but you weren't wise. I'm angry with you. You better go talk to Job. And so Job prays for them. They offer sacrifices. It's actually a fairly happy ending. Elihu, of course, God wasn't angry with. In all likelihood, Elihu was probably a prophet or someone inspired by God in a special way. He comes in late as this kind of prophetic figure. Not necessarily a Christ figure, but a prophetic figure nonetheless. And then at the end, what happens? Job gets double the sheep, double the cows, double the goats. He gets all seven of his children back, and he dies at double the age. The age here at the end, he lives 140 years. You're only supposed to live 70 years in the Bible. That's the average lifespan of a person during this time. And so we see that he lives double the time. He has all his sons and his son's sons all the way through four generations. And what does he do? He dies full of days. The reality is that God was there all along. He redeems, he restores, he blesses his people. We might not see that until we pass on to glory. But nevertheless, the truth remains God is there. Suffering is there too. And it's not always because of sin. We need to learn how to, we're almost done. We need to learn how to separate suffering and sin. Our answer shouldn't be when I come up and say I'm suffering or something's going on or I'm in turmoil or, you know, something, whatever's happening in our lives. We shouldn't immediately look for an answer that correlates because sometimes there's not an answer there it simply is because that is what god has ordained and remember god is god what did he say to his wife you want to take the good from god but you don't want to take the evil god is god another way to put it paul says this you're going to mess around with the potter when you're just the clay who are you to talk about how the vase should be made. God is God. He's in control. What's so wonderful is that we are not left to the suffering. Is that God comforts, he protects, he redeems, he restores, and he does it all the time in so many ways. And if he doesn't ever do it in your life or in my life, if we enter into a season of suffering that lasts literally the entire span of our life on this earth. Well, as we maintain our hope in Jesus, we have 10,000 times 10,000 years to sing his praise. Perfect, without sin, and without suffering. No more tears, no more, no more mourning, for those things have passed away. That's our hope. And yet God, even here now, restores and redeems and protects us. He protects us even here. By giving us this. That's the book of Job. There's a lot more. There's even a lot more on this handout. Y'all check it out. Ladies, I can't wait to hear 
some of the more in-depth studies. I think Rebecca's going, so I'm excited to be able to join in on that and get to reap some of the reward, I hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we would pray that you would help us to see, indeed, that you are God. What a sometimes difficult thing to profess, that you are sovereign and in control, and that that means that when suffering comes, you have ordained it to be so, that it is your will in that moment for us to be going through difficulty. And yet, Father, allow us to uh, not look to ourselves, not seek answers where there are none, but to look to you and to be comforted in the gospel of Jesus and to see the reality that you from the very beginning have set a redemptive plan and stage for your people that we might move forward into a redemptive moment in history where there is no more suffering. And yet, God, for now, be with us. Comfort us. Remove us from suffering and temptation, if it be your will. And yet, Lord, nevertheless, not our wills, but your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.